World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. You might have heard of the Uyghurs, a persecuted Muslim minority in China. But there's another Muslim group, just as large, spread throughout the country. We speak to some Hui people experiencing the repression of their religion. And in Europe this weekend, a new system for weeding out fake drugs will come into force. It's massive, complicated, and eye-wateringly expensive. And practically no one wants it. So why was it set up? But first... An arms control treaty is dead, and some say it marks the end of the post-Cold War era. In the past week, first America and then Russia announced they would withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF. It's an agreement that has been a pillar of arms control for 30 years. Welcome to the White House. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan signed the treaty with his Russian counterpart, Mikhail Gorbachev. The importance of this treaty transcends numbers. But the numbers were impressive. Between them, the two sides destroyed nearly 3,000 short- and medium-range nuclear and non-nuclear missiles. It was part of the historic thaw of the Cold War. This was a rare thing. This was a treaty that... Uh, was the first and only arms control agreement to eliminate not just some weapons, not just to cap their numbers or limit them, but it eliminated an entire class of weapons. Shashank Joshi is our defence editor. This was a landmark treaty that not only eliminated that entire set of missiles, conventional and nuclear, but it also diffused a missile race that was spiralling out of control between the Soviets and the Americans. Uh, And by doing so, it eased the Cold War at a crucial moment, and it encouraged a spirit of conciliation that probably carried through into Mikhail Gorbachev's further interactions with the West. So why have both sides decided to pull out of this treaty now then? Well, in short, missiles have become more important to conflict, not not necessarily nuclear ones, usually conventional ones. But look, the treaty allowed missiles to be carried on ships, submarines and aircraft. The Soviet Union realised that America had a big advantage in those areas. Uh, Russia realised that as well when it became Russia. And they saw, look, first of all, um, the Americans are building these things more effectively than we can. And second of all, there are all these other countries around that didn't have intermediate range missiles back when we banned them in the 80s. We have uh, China, particularly, which has now got over 2,000 of these missiles. We have Iran, we have Israel, we have India. 
And then more recently, the Americans looked at China and thought, hang on, there is a huge missile gap opening up with China. So that's one of the reasons. The other one, of course, is that Russia cheated. Russia uh, developed and then tested over the past 10 years an illegal missile. And America decided, hang on, we've been complaining about this for 10 years. Enough is enough. You spoke of the, the spirit of conciliation that was part of the founding of this treaty, and, and in a sense it's, it's, uh, it's a shame to lose that, but at the same time uh, the world has changed, um, and there is an idea that this treaty going away might be good for, for example, the containment of Chinese aggression, a kind of leveling of the playing field now that the, the world has changed. On balance, with all that in mind, do you think uh, the events of, of this past week are good news or bad news for, for global stability? This is not great news, uh, not just because of what it means for missiles, but also because what it means for trust. Uh, by by cheating, by building these illegal cruise missiles, Russia has really uh, made a very toxic atmosphere for any other kinds of discussions. Uh, and by pulling out in this way so quickly, so hastily, America has probably also uh, caused concern with its other partners as to how reliable and trustworthy it is. So in that sense, it's bad news. But what I would say is that it doesn't mean we're going to be plunged back into a, a frenzied arms race straight away. Uh, the simple fact is America doesn't really have matching missiles. It wasn't allowed to build them, of course. Uh, it will take it a long time to produce the kinds of missiles that can reach this range. But in the short term, I think we are going to see some very aggressive developments of existing missiles from the US and Russia, including some very, very sophisticated nuclear systems, such as a Russian system, for instance, an underwater drone that can irradiate American cities and other types of uh, strange and horrible new weapons. And how might all this affect um, NATO, which is already worried about uh, Russian weapons building up? Well, NATO strongly supported America uh, in its handling of this. But that doesn't mean NATO wants to see a missile race break out between America and Russia. There may be some NATO allies, particularly those in the East, like Poland, who would be happy, indeed delighted, to take on new American missiles that could reach Moscow and other parts of Russia. But that doesn't mean the rest of the alliance would be uh, in, uh, keen on seeing that kind of shift. Now, if America were to cut a deal with an individual country like Poland or someone else, that would be very destabilizing for the alliance at a time when, as we all know, uh, transatlantic trust is already very low. In other words, Vladimir Putin, by cheating, may have very successfully set the cat amongst the pigeons in the Western alliance. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. When you're covering China, you're covering a continent-sized country. David Rennie writes Chagwon, our column about China. He's recently returned there 20 years after his first posting. 
it's still China, even if the buildings have tripled in height and you can get a latte on every street corner, it's still definitely the same place. The politics has changed. It's a lot more important a country. It's a lot more suspicious of people like me, but I still love it. And I still love getting out of the big cities and talking to real Chinese. Chaguan means tea house in Chinese, and it's historically a place that ordinary Chinese of every class could gather and exchange ideas and debate, and that's what we hope the column will reflect. I want to get out of the big cities and explain people who don't necessarily make headlines, not the most famous people or the poorest or the richest, but just what is life like in this gigantic country of well over a billion people. Talking to people who don't often have a voice in the Western media and using the column to get away from the news headlines and try and explain the kind of the big trends in society. Recently, David traveled to a verdant region that borders Vietnam. I went to Guangxi, which is right down in the south of China. It's the landscape you think of if you think of Chinese scroll paintings. You have these very sharp limestone peaks covered in trees and forests. And in the middle of this iconic Chinese landscape, you have some villages with a lot of Muslims living in them. There have been Muslims in China since at least the 8th century. About half of them are Uyghurs, who live in the Xinjiang region in the north. Their persecution has been widely reported. The Communist Party is accused of locking up hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs in internment camps. Officials in the region say they are re-education centers that tackle extremism through thought transformation. Around another 10 million Chinese Muslims are of the Hui ethnicity, who live all over the country. They too have been suffering government repression, but of a more subtle kind. And I visited a village near a city, Guilin, big tourist center. A little mosque looks a lot like a Chinese temple. It's been there a hundred years. And it's a real example of how some forms of Islam, particularly the Hui minority, they have integrated for centuries into Chinese life. Um, and how are these, these Islamic groups viewed by the Communist Party? Well, this is what's really changed, and that's why I was down in Guangxi, is that although the Communist Party has been suspicious of Uyghurs for a long time, because they're essentially not Chinese, they speak a different language, they look different, the Hui had always been seen as this kind of, it's a terrible phrase, but the model minority. They were very well integrated. They were hard to distinguish from other Han Chinese. But just recently, we've seen signs of suspicion where the Communist Party has been going into Hui areas and closing down Arab language schools, closing or raiding mosques that have been teaching kids Islamic tuition after services, and amazing stuff like sort of taking the onion domes off mosques and accusing these things of being too Arabic, even renaming a river because the name sounded too Arabic to uh, communist officials. And what that tells you is that this is a panic about the idea that foreign forces, Islamic extremist Arabic forces, are somehow infiltrating China through the channel of these very, very long-established Muslim communities. So why, why did you choose this one particular mosque in, in this one rural village? So I went because it's near the hometown of a World War II general who was a very senior general, but who's also a Muslim and who stood for something that at the time was sort of well understood back in World War II, which was that you could be a, a Muslim and a patriotic Chinese citizen fighting the Japanese. He's almost completely forgotten now. 
the village nearest to his with a, a functioning mosque, the imam was both kind of pretty miserable about how few people locally actually really do very much about their Islamic faith, but he was also very hospitable, and it was a very moving event. It was a very small mosque, looked like a Chinese temple, had a courtyard. To one side, you had this wood-burning stove with firewood stacked up neatly and a wok bubbling away. His wife in a headscarf was uh, starting to get supper ready. He invited my uh, assistant and me to supper. They got a chicken, they put in some sweet corn. They really wanted to be kind of welcoming Muslims. They invited us to join their afternoon prayers. The Ahong was extremely cautious when it came to talking about politics. He really didn't want to discuss what it was like to be a Muslim in China in terms of the government. He was much more interested in telling me that most people locally had forgotten their faith, that the young are playing with their smartphones. That people locally drank alcohol and ate pork. Uh, So he was uh, sort of a weirdly forlorn figure in this village, when you have this government campaign nationwide uh, worried about Islamic extremism, in this very Chinese rural village, it felt like a kind of a faith a bit adrift. You, you mentioned this this notion of simply accepting what Allah gives you, but what these people are facing is, for example, in some provinces, the abolishment of standards for halal meat. It's very hard to strictly follow the faith if the government is kind of undermining things even at that level, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. So until quite recently, you would have chirpy stories in the state media about how Hui businesses were doing great business, making halal food and selling it to the Muslim world, to the Middle East. And several provinces developed kind of their own local standards for halal food and halal meat. That is now under pressure. You're seeing attacks in the state media saying that this is Arabization. And so these standards need to be abolished. And I actually met a family in the village who were busy uh, salting and curing ducks uh, ready for spring festival. They were a Hui family. There was a guy uh, with a a bowl full of neck bones that he was salting ready to prepare as a sort of food of some sort. And I asked them if they were preparing halal ducks and they said no no there's no call for it at all there's no there's no market for it most of our customers are han and you know they seem very indifferent to the idea of of trying to distinguish themselves as hui businessmen that's different from how it used to be and so in that sense the 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 government push to uh, essentially kind of rub these people out of history is working it's one of those moments where a lot of ordinary Chinese will just kind of pull back. So I was asking fairly benign questions, I mean, very benign questions, this family who was sort of sitting in an alleyway outside their house. I was asking stories about, you know, what's it like being a Hui? Has it got harder? He was starting to answer me. And uh, a woman sitting next to him, I, I believe his daughter, said, just stop talking. Oh, and then said to me, everything is very good and we have no problems here whatsoever. And so it was that kind of a, a very tense encounter in this otherwise incredibly sleepy country village. So it, it seems from what you've told me, David, that, that there have been times in the past where the, the Hui were quite integrated, that there, were, there, there weren't these pressures on Muslims generally in the Hui in, in particular. Why, why has that changed? What's different now? Absolutely. Several times in Chinese history over the centuries, you've had Hui intellectuals uh, saying that you can have dual loyalties. 
you offer the emperor and then the government, then the Communist Party, your political loyalty, but you can also be a good Muslim. And that if you educate Muslim children, that's also going to help modernize and develop the country. Unfortunately, today's Communist Party doesn't seem to want to share, and they would rather have a sullen, silent, single loyalty to them than something more sincere if it involves sharing it with Allah. <laughs> There are a lot of numbers floating around at The Economist that that arise as, as part of our journalists' reporting, so I've been asking them to drop by with interesting numbers they've come across. Today, Slavea Chankova, our healthcare correspondent, has dropped by with a number. Slavea, what is it? 0.005. 0.005 sounds really tiny. It is. That's the percentage of medicine packs sold through the legal supply chain in the EU, which are thought to be fake. Doesn't sound like such a such a large fraction of fake medicine. That's right. But on Saturday, there is a new EU-wide system being launched, which aims to limit this tiny fraction. It's called the European Medicines Verification System. It's a massive IT project. There will be one hub which will hold unique barcodes for every single pack of medicines put on the market. So every pharmacy will have to scan the pack and verify with the system that the pack is not fake. And so this this sounds like a fair bit of work at the sort of the, the point of, of dispensing. How do, how do pharmacies feel about it? Well, they're not happy about it. I mean, they had to pay about 500 euros for these scanners. They had to upgrade their software, train their staff. They obviously spend time scanning packages for for a problem that they actually don't see in their day-to-day business. Okay, so all of this work and I guess all of this animosity towards all of this work, why did these rules even come into being? Very good question. And the answer depends on who you ask. So big pharma companies, which lobbied for for the system and are paying for most of the costs, say that back when this idea first came up, some countries were worried about the problem. So they were considering introducing their own verification systems, which would be a big hassle for a manufacturer because they would have to label things in so many different ways. So big pharma companies say say they pushed for, for this uniform system to save themselves hassle. Others in Brussels say that big pharma companies had a different motive. They wanted the system as a means to put the squeeze on parallel traders. Who were they? They're firms which buy medicines in EU countries with lower prices and sell them in countries with higher prices, which they can do legally because um, there is free trade within the EU. Right. So the idea is uh, making them comply with this new EU-wide directive is just essentially a great deal more work, more packaging, more labeling, more hassle, and then that just kind of maybe squeezes them out of business. People say that that was the idea. So what's going to happen on Saturday when these rules actually go into effect? So it looks like there will be lots of glitches. So pharmacists are going to get lots of false alerts for all sorts of reasons. Pharmacists are being told in many countries to just ignore these alerts, assume they're false alerts for one reason or another, and go ahead and dispense the pack. Right. So a uh, system that no one really wants solving a problem that no one really has using kit that no one really believes. That's probably a good way to summarize. Right. Slavea, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.